And truly we are thankful for all that God has done, but we are not thankful enough. God continues to lavish out His gifts and His grace and His mercy to us. And we need to see with eyes of faith that which He is doing. And that's how we walk throughout this life. And that really is the context in which we find ourselves in the 15th chapter of the book of Matthew, beginning at verse 21, as we continue through our trek through Matthew in its context. And we come to this time in which Jesus meets up in a very unexpected way with this woman from Canaan. Begin reading with me in verse 21 through verse 28. Then Jesus went out from there and departed to the region of Tyre and Sidon. And behold, a woman of Canaan came from that region, cried out to him, saying, Have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David. My daughter is severely demon-possessed. But he answered her not a word. And his disciples came and urged him, saying, Send her away, for she cries out after us. But he answered and said, I was not sent except to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Then she came and worshipped him, saying, Lord, help me. But he answered and said, It is not good to take the children's bread and throw it to the little dogs. And she said, Yes, Lord, yet even the little dogs eat the crumbs which fall from their master's table. Then Jesus answered and said to her, O woman, great is your faith. Let it be to you as you desire. And her daughter was healed from that very hour. Our gracious Father, we ask that you would open up our hearts to to trust you more, to believe you, and that we might gain from this passage great understanding in our hearts regarding the nature of faith and what you have done for this woman, and that you will also do for us. We pray that as you have called us to walk by faith and not by sight, that we would be faithful and that you would be pleased and that you would strengthen our faith in every circumstance, in times of praying, in times of loss, in times of great victory, in times of discouragement, in times where things are going very well, in times when things seem very bleak and dark. Lord, Strengthen our faith that we can always praise you and glorify you and fall at your feet and worship you for who you are. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Think about it for just a moment. If you were to ask yourself or to answer the question, really, what is the chief problem with all of mankind and what we really are faced with. The chief problem is what? What? It's, it's unbelief. It's really what it is. Right, right from the very beginning. That is the, the biggest problem that we have. The greatest sin, the cardinal sin, most foundational sin, is not believing God. It's not trusting Him, it's not trusting His Word, it's not taking what He says completely and not believing it perfectly. His Word's perfect, it's complete. Not trusting His wisdom, questioning Him, doubting Him, that is the cardinal sin. 
And every human being doubts. This is exactly what Jesus came to redeem. This is exactly the problem that he came to fix. All of our sin is rooted in unbelief. We go our own way. We draw our own conclusions about how life should be. We about conclusions about life according to our own perspective. We make judgments, we make calls, we ration or reason our way through with cognitive processes. We feel pretty good about the way we think about matter. We go about life trusting our intellect over God's word, our inclinations over God's precepts, and our feelings over God's promises. This is how we were born into this world, just in a, in a state of unbelief. And as a result of that, Life is broken. It doesn't work. We get covered with fear, anxiety, worry, troubled spirit, internal chaos, broken relationships, delusion. A life that is characterized by an inner death rather than life. But a genuine faith in God, a faith that is characterized by faithfulness in trusting in what God has revealed, in trusting is what God is pleased with. In fact, when we do not do this, it is greatly displeasing to God. Iniquity it is not to believe God. It's a great sin not to trust Him or take Him at His word. And before us in this passage is a woman of great faith from whom we can learn much. The main point around which all of this uh, passage um, drives is the where it climaxes in this one phrase, O woman, great is your faith. That's the greatest point that he is making in this entire passage. In fact, that is the main point and which around all of those other details merely uh, emerge, support, and reveal. The point, the main point, is not that Jesus healed her daughter. The main point is, a woman, great is your faith. This is the only time in all of Scripture that Jesus said that someone's faith is great. And all of the details that surround that main point are to amplify and to highlight and to frame that main point. And it is my prayerful hope that we can learn to grow today in our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. To be more rooted in Him, more joyful in God, more thankful to Him, and more trusting in Him in every situation of life. And we have a situation that God had ordered and just set up right here with this woman us. We don't necessarily think about life this way, but God may have you on this earth for one main specific point and reason of some event that he may do in your life for the sake of the entire church. John the Baptist's ministry is very short, and when God was finished, he called him home. James, one of the inner circle, was the, the first of the twelve to, to be martyred and he was the one that Jesus spent one of the, most of the time with. Whatever the reason is, and only God knows, 
You're going to have to live your life in faith trusting Him and to be faithful in that call. The first thing I'd like for us to draw out from this, this text is we see the context of this woman's faith is quite unexpected. Quite unexpected. Every detail of this narrative is meant to highlight this woman's great faith. And the first of those details is we find Jesus in such a place that we would not expect finding this great faith. You might remember that since the death of John the Baptist and as we began the narrative of the new section in Matthew chapter 14, at the very beginning, that's when Jesus begins to withdraw himself from the crowds. Now Matthew has highlighted in the narratives about how the crowds and the multitudes follow Jesus, but beginning in verse 1 of chapter 14, Jesus begins to withdraw from those crowds. And here we find he is so withdrawn from the, uh, the Jewish context that he, we find him up in the region of Tyre and Sidon. And that's where we find him withdrawing. And there he meets a Canaanite woman. And both of those cities were well out of the boundaries, of the northern boundaries of, of Israel. In fact, Tyre was 15 miles just due northwest of the most northern boundary of Israel at that time. And that's, by the way, the crow flies, not necessarily by the way you would get there. Sidon is another 25 to 30 miles north of that. And in those days, without automobiles and mass transportation, that was a pretty extensive distance away from what we would call kind of the Jewish home base. And in fact, there, the Jewish population was not uh, very popular. It was mostly populated with Gentiles and not heavily populated at all by Jews up in that area. So it's quite unexpected. But then he meets this woman who also is quite unexpected of a person of which he said had great faith. It's a Gentile woman. In fact, the woman was a Canaanite. It's the only time the term Canaanite is used in the New Testament. So we have in this passage some only times that certain terms were used. And that's to draw our attention to the details to see how this is highlighting the main point. Oh, great is your faith. Remember, and you have to keep this in context because we're trying to unpack these passages in the context of the whole book and see how these pieces fit together. And, and we, we have Matthew writing primarily to whom? What kind of audience? The Jews. And that's why as he uses this term Canaanite woman, this is going to strum a particular chord in the heart of a Jew. And we should remember and consider the significance of that term in this context to that audience. The Canaanites were those peoples who were to be completely exterminated for their wickedness. And God was going to give their land to his people. So from the standpoint of human history, this is a woman standing here before Jesus who was never supposed to be living from the human standpoint, right? It's these details of the narrative that are to draw our attention 
to the unexpected nature of where Jesus finds so great faith. The second thing that brings out in this text, or this text brings out to us, is that this woman's faith was greatly tested. There is no other individual during our Lord's earthly ministry that was put to this kind of test by the Lord Jesus. The woman comes to Jesus rather than to the disciples. She comes straight to Jesus, verse 22. And behold, a woman of Canaan came from that region and cried out to him, saying, Have mercy, O Lord, son of David. My daughter is severely demon-possessed. Those of you who are parents can probably identify that some of the greatest and most agonizing things that we face are not struggles that we internally, personally face, but by what we watch our children go through. Anyone who has ever had a really sick child knows what I'm talking about. You stay up all night watching over them and hovering over them, making sure that all would be well. We want our children's best. We will go through great sacrifices and love for our children so that they will have a better lot than we will. And here's this woman. She comes and cries out because she sees her daughter severely demon-possessed and in great agony, and it's wrenching her, and we don't know all the details of how that, but we do see from other situations where demon possession took place, it, it had all kinds of of detrimental effects, not only upon the spirit, but even the body. And she comes out and she lays her agony before the Lord Jesus Christ and says, have mercy on me, Lord, Son of David. And the scripture then says, but he answered her not a word. You have to think about this. Get into the narrative of this story. The Lord answered her not a word. Imagine coming with some degree of agony for your suffering child, knowing that this man has the ability and the power to remedy the problem, to be the answer to the questions and troubles her, and he just ignores her. It's silent. She pleads with him. He answers her not in a word. This woman's faith is being tested by Jesus' silence. And that silence in that context was severe. And he said nothing. Have you ever prayed and it feels like your prayers are just bouncing off the ceiling and just kind of evaporating out into the atmosphere and your words just seem they're not being heard and that this is a fruitless exercise and that you don't know why you're spending your time doing this and you just don't feel like this is the right thing or the efficacious nature of what you should be doing and feel like God's just not listening. That's what's going on in this narrative. 
God's not listening from her perspective. And when that happens to you, when you feel like God's not listening, when it seems dark and he seems distant, you need to remember three things from this text. Number one, you need to remember and know that God is listening. Number two, you need to know that silence from God does not necessarily mean no. We know how the story ends. And number three, you need to know that this is a time of testing your faith. And that's what glorifies God. It's the faith. Without faith, it is impossible to please God. And a good faith, even a strong faith, is to be tested. He answers her not a word. So what does she do? She turns to the disciples. And she then turns to be pleading with them and crying out to them. And his disciples came and urged Jesus, send her away. She cries out after us. This is a persistent woman. What drove her persistence? Many people would have just been offended. Well, fine, if that's the way you're going to act. No, not her. There's a humility there. But a persistence. She was believing something. And she stood on it and she kept going. You can see the way that the verse is worded here. That she turned to the disciples and began to entreat them. Because they then got to the point where you can see they were annoyed with her. And they really just wanted Jesus to... Heal the woman's daughter so that she will leave. <laughs> That's the implication by the way that the text is worded. Send her away for she cries out now after us. And then the way that Jesus answers the disciples, I think that's important in verse 24. He's answering the disciples, not the woman in verse 24 when he says, but he answered and said to the disciples, I was not sent except to the lost house or the lost sheep of the house of Israel. That was his answer to the disciples who said, send her away. Uh, heal this woman. Send her away. She's crying out after us now. And Jesus says, but I was sent to Israel. To the sheep there. And what you have here is an incident where really now other people are praying and interceding on your behalf. You may have been put there in that kind of situation. Uh, where a person is so persistent that you finally cry out. Out of the burden of the whole situation. Lord would you give this person what they desire. With the implication. Phil leave us alone. <laughs> Lord would you give this person. What they want. So they'll stop emailing me. Or texting me all the time. Or just, they just stop bringing it up. Every single prayer meeting. Would you just give this person what they want. And what we're really asking is. Lord would you do this for me? <laughs> well that, that's really the situation. That's being portrayed here. And the Lord responds to 
occur in very scriptural terms. He's responding to the disciples in scriptural terms. We'll find that he does now open his mouth to her in scriptural terms. Now we do have occasions in scripture where God simply says no, no. And it's all good. David wants to build a temple for God. This was something of a passion of his and something that he had great uh, zeal to do and one that he was engaged in and God had given him victory over the enemies. The land was at rest and God says, now David says, I want to build God a temple. And it was God's plan for a temple to be built. But God says to David through the mouth of Nathan, no, you're not going to be the one. Your son will, but not you. Paul, in his ministry, was confronted and had this thorn in the flesh, of which was called a messenger from Satan, but it was used to humble Paul, and Paul cries out, Lord, deliver me from this and remove this thorn. And Jesus says, no. Lord, would you remove this from me? No. Lord, if it be your will, would you remove this thorn of in my side. No, Paul. Okay. It's not always God's will to say yes. He has reasons only which are known to him and which are good reasons that are for our good and for his glory that he sometimes says no, but never takes silence as that answer. It's not necessarily a no when he's just quiet. But in verse 25, she persists. Even in the face of a silence, in the face of hearing how he answered the disciples in the refusal that was based even on messianic terms, that did not deter her. She came falling down and worshiping Jesus and says, Lord, help me. He had a scriptural basis, a messianic calling, and all of this, it did not deter her. The answers were scriptural, and she still comes worshiping Him. Falling down says, help me. She no doubt knew very little of the scriptures. She knew a little. She calls Him son of David. But very little. She did not have all of the means of grace that the house of Israel had. She did not have all of the tools that we have to move the arm of God. Have you ever thought about it that way? All she has was a pitiful plea. And that's what makes it hurt so much when we hear our Lord rebuffing her. Verse 26, in a very unpleasant way. But he said to her now, it is not good to take the children's bread and throw it to the little dogs. And in that way, he verbally pushes her aside. And we 
kind of get a little uncomfortable with our good and loving Lord in this particular situation as we behold the narrative unfolding in this pitiful woman crying out for her demon-possessed daughter, and we have known that Jesus has healed so many that have come to him, and he just seems to rebuff and is silent and pushing her aside, and it just seems unpleasant, and, and we struggle with this narrative. Why was he handling her that way? What is the point? It was... To test her faith. And now this whole thing. Gets inscripturated. And preserved. So that we become privy. To what was going on. And we can grow from it. So this woman. When you get to heaven. You can thank her. You can honor her. Because you are standing on her shoulders. She comes in one of the line. Like. Like a Rahab, the harlot, or Ruth, the Moabitess. And she's in the narrative of this great story now. And Jesus had set all of the stage and God had prepared all of the setting for this drama to go out before the foundation of the world. Put all things into play. Jesus withdrew quite a distance. And there the scene unfolds for us. And the way that this woman came to Jesus, the way she came to him was on believing terms. Now, how do you come to God? She came on believing terms. It's that which pleases God. When you come to God in times where you are stressed and squeezed and pressured, what spontaneously comes out of your mouth in times like those is a revelation of where you are with God relationally. Okay? What comes out of your mouth spontaneously. We often use certain terms and phrases in our praying and in our salutation or our approach to God. Sometimes we use the term so frequently that we tend to tune ourselves out to it, but God never does. We use terms that we often don't use in other contexts or other places, but God who knows our heart is taking note of those very things and he will test us. This woman comes in, Lord, and the word Lord there is the word Master. Her approach is in terms of lordship. And he's going to test her. On the very way that she approaches him. Now if we come to God in the way that we do. It is, is, it, is it wrong for God to test us out in the way that we approach him? Our gracious heavenly father. We start. Is it wrong for God to test us out? Oh, you do admit that I'm gracious. Indeed, I am. Let's test you out on that. Do you really believe that God owes us absolutely nothing? That we are entitled to nothing? Do we act entitled? Do we come presumptuously? Do we come to God feeling like He owes us? Or do we complain about our lot, feeling like God has given us 
a bad lot in life and we deserve better our gracious Heavenly Father? Do we truly believe that everything that we have does come to God, to us, from grace? God will test us. We we might have forgotten, and we just might get into the habit. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we come. Ah, well, let's just back it up a little bit, Marion. Do you really? I'm going to test you on how you approach me. Do you really believe and experience God's fatherly love? Do you think about Him this way, or do you feel about think about Him in some way as some kind of angry character that is always with a big belt in His hand, looking for every little detail that He can spank you for? Or do you think that God is such a loving Heavenly Father? He's going to not only does He going to care for every detail of your life, He's going to provide you with every sustenance that your body and your soul needs. He's going to take care of all of your health needs, including death itself. And do you truly come to Him as a father and a little child, just joyfully coming to a father, glad to be in His presence, glad to experience the relationship with your father to the extent that your heart is warm and joyful when you're in His presence. Is that really what you believe? Does your life show forth that belief? Is it not wrong? Is it wrong for God to test us out in these things? This woman's first claim was acceptance and belief. And we have to recall that Jesus didn't do many miracles in the region where he grew up because they did not believe. They had little faith there, so he did not do many works there. Jesus was constantly confronted with unbelief from his own people. But this woman's faith was great, and it came in a very unexpected place and from a very unexpected woman. And we see the sharpest possible contrast between This woman and the ones that you would expect. Third, from this text, we see that the faith of this woman was demonstrated and it was found great. And even Jesus declared it was so. Two notable things that we see in her response in verse 27. And then she says back to the Lord, Yes, Lord, yet even the little dogs eat the crumbs which fall from their master's table. First thing, parables were given in a language, as the scripture says, so that it would be hidden from those who do not believe, but it would be revealed to those of faith. Lord, why do you speak to us in parables? And he says, to hide these things from the prudent and the wise and to reveal them to the babes, to reveal them to you. Now that's notable here because not only did she understand the parable, She is the only one in Scripture that answers Jesus back in parabolic language. It's one thing to be able to learn a foreign language, to be able to discern what's being told, to be able to hear it and understand and pick out the parts a little bit. But it's quite another thing to be able to compose in that foreign language back so that the one in that language can understand you. The most difficult time in my entire seminary whatsoever was second year Hebrew exegesis where we had to compose in the Hebrew 
paragraphs that were given to us in English. And that was the absolute most difficult part of my entire seminary study. And my papers proved it. (laughs) She composes in parabolic language. Even when the disciples are often struggling to understand what Jesus is meaning. Even back in verses 15 and 16, Peter says, Lord, would you explain the parable to us? And you can almost hear the, 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 uh, how much longer will I be with you? Where's your faith? And this goes right to the very heart of faith and understanding that Augustine would then later write about on which we now understand, or at least I hope that we're gaining a beginning of understanding that faith precedes understanding and not the other way around. Would to God that we would all believe and understand that. You don't first understand in order to believe, but rather you believe so that you may understand. It's fundamental to the very nature of the gospel in our lives. It's fundamental to our worldview. It's fundamental to who we are. You believe in order to understand, and then with your understanding, as Augustine would say, it helps us to believe the more. But faith precedes understanding. Augustine would put it in these words, quote, understanding is the reward of faith. Therefore, seek not to understand that you may believe, but believe that you may understand, end of quote. That's how he put it. So this woman's faith allowed her to understand what Jesus meant. She was able to hear the Lord. And if you're going to understand the will of God, you must approach God on believing terms. Without faith, the scripture says, it is impossible to please God. Without faith, it is impossible to believe God. For with faith, you must believe that God is and that he is a rewarder. He will bless those who come to him by faith. On believing terms. Then God will grant you understanding. I think there's so many people in this world and even Christians that that, uh, are genuinely Christian but have little faith and they lack so much understanding because of it. The way that some people process things in their mind, the way that they view life, Perhaps it's been so inculcated and indoctrinated with the ways of the world and the, 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 the idolatry of the world and the immorality of the world that it had skews their mind to such a place that they do not understand because they do not have seeing faith eyes. But God had granted to this woman the faith with which she believed. It was a gift. From God from the beginning. The source of her faith was God himself. Jesus knew this from the beginning when he found this woman. This whole narrative was was orchestrated and God showed the son uh, where he wanted the son to go. And the son didn't obey the father. He retreated up to this area of Tyre and Sidon for this predetermined meeting. And the scene had been set with the actors entering the scene to reveal this woman's great faith. And to show us. What great faith looks like and how it acts. 
Great faith to understand the will of God. Great faith that can hear and understand the difficult communications of God. And it persists with God even when God seems silent. It persists with God even when God seems distant. It pursues God even when God seemingly rebuffs us. He did not say no in any of that. Because it is this faith that pleases God. And don't you want to please God? Then you trust God. You take Him at His word. That's what He's called you to do. When you do not do that, you displease Him. It is sin. It is iniquity. It is for the very thing that Jesus came to die to save you from. We come into this world doubting God. Has God said? The second notable thing in her response is subtle, but it is profound. And I want you to notice this. This is good. The reference to the dog passage. It, it, it may seem harsh. She had ears to hear and eyes to see and a heart to understand something that is not apparent to us. Remember when Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount back in Matthew 7, I believe it was verse 6, when he says, do not give what is holy to the dogs. And we see that this is the context in which Jesus is now applying the situation with the way that he's responding to the Gentiles. And it may appear on the surface, that this is what is going on when he is keeping that principle in the way that he responds. But the subtlety of it is this. The term that Jesus uses for dog in Matthew 7, 6 is a term that means the street dog, the scavenger. The term he uses here is a diminutive form of that term. Very subtle. A diminutive form, but it means a small dog. A house dog, a pet, a lap dog. And that's why the translator in the New King James translates it little dog. It's a lap pet. It's the domino. It's the, 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 the other little dogs that you have that you just, you know, they jump up on the furniture and they jump up on your lap and you, you pet them. They, it's, that's, what, that's what it's here. That's, that's the word. It's the dog that's underneath your table. So that when you grow up in a family like mine, who mom is always slipping the dog the food, the dog just comes up there, and when she's not getting food from one area, he comes up and, and starts bumping me, so that when I have those peas that I don't want to eat on my plate, it's very convenient. Mmm. Look him up. It's the pet. It's the household pet. That's the term. And the woman in her great faith seized upon that term and this opportunity and made the connection. And if I'm that woman, I think I just heard him say, I'm in the household. You see? That's how faith hears. That's the subtlety of the matter that is before us. And she has already demonstrated the obvious in terms of the way she responded. But this is the subtle way. I think I'm in the household. 
Taking one little subtlety of a diminished term and then taking it and running with it with her faith. And so she then tells the Lord, oh, yes, but the crumbs that fall. Even the little dogs, even the house pets, the house laps that are loved in the household will eat those things. It was not her quick wit that gave her that response. It was the Lord himself who gave her the prayer to begin with, where she cries out, and now the Spirit of God gives her these words, which He often does to us in prayer, that even the little house pets get their crumbs from the Master's table, the very same word that the Lord tested her on. She says, Master, this is the same word she addressed Jesus with, Lord, before. This woman gets refusal, she gets pushed aside, she gets marginalized, and yet she seizes upon the slightest suggestion that she might be included, and truly this was for her. And she had heard rightly. And that's why great faith can take the subtle suggestions of God in testing our faith and seize them for great opportunity. When we hear the great faith, the subtle and small suggestions that God sends our way. With faith, you can hear it. With faith, you can understand it. With faith, you can seize the opportunity. That's what pleases God. And if you're walking with God, you can, God gives you the sense and the discernment of the subtle suggestions. That we seize upon, that He wants us to grab hold of, that He wants us to take hold of the opportunity. But without faith, it is impossible to please Him. Without faith, you won't see it. Without faith, you won't seize it. And God wants you to know that He is a rewarder of those who come to Him by faith. Well, the conclusion of the story, and God wants us all to take heart in this, Jesus answered and said, Oh, woman! Your faith is great. Let it be to you as you desire. He was always going to do that. He was always intending to do that. Even during the silent moments, he was always going to say yes, even when it seemed that he was going to say no, even when it appeared that he was rebuffing her. The whole thing was to amplify the details of her great faith so that in spite of the the context, we now see the climax. Oh, great is your faith. That is the point. Another great quote from Augustine on faith says, Faith is to believe what you do not see. The reward of this faith is to see what you believe. Faith is to believe what you do not see. The reward of this faith is to see what you believe. And this is exactly what happened with the Canaanite woman. That's why she persisted. I can see that Jesus can heal. She believed and she understood. She believed and her belief was rewarded in seeing the answer that she so desired. And may God so strengthen our faith to approach Him on believing terms. To trust Him and not to fear. To approach Him in faith not worrying, but believing in His promises that He will provide. 
to persist in faith until God answers, like the wrestling of Jacob at Peniel. To know that faith must be tested and so not give up so easily when God appears quiet and silent and distant. A faith in every circumstance is what pleases God the most. Is the thing that Jesus came to restore in us all. May he be pleased with us to grow our faith individually and corporately in the days to come as he grows us in himself and roots us in himself, showing that he is our redeemer. He is our master and Lord, the son of David, our gracious father. May the spirit of God take this truth of this Gentile woman. A woman that represents in some way us who are Gentiles. But we hope who would represent us in our faith as well, that we would be strong in our faith, believing as children of Abraham by faith, we walk by faith and ask that you would strengthen us in our areas of unbelief. That we would obey righteously. And trust you in all circumstances. And have a joy that transcends all sorrow. Even in those sorrowful times. May we not fear what man can do or circumstances bring. But knowing that our God will be with us in it all. To give us the the transcendent life beyond the, the troubles. And victory in times of persecution. And love in times of where hatred is rampant. Grant us, O Lord, a strong faith that would please you, believes you are what you are, and that you reward those people that come to you like this woman did in faith. And we pray this for your glory. We pray this for the sake of your Son, Jesus Christ, in his name. Amen.